Well, this last weekend we had the uh, church camp out, and it was a, it was a ton of fun. These little kids just running around and splashing in the river and uh, hot weather, us just hanging out in the, under an awning and got a chance to worship together and fellowship. And some of the people at our church, you should know, take their camping breakfasts very seriously. Uh, some people do very big. I just do a handful of trail mix quite usually, and people brought all the stuff, and it was just a good time. You, you do those events with people and spend time, maybe parties or uh, gatherings with your family or, or church life that you've had in the past, and, and just enjoy it. It was just, just a good time. You come home, and, and you just can't help but think, well, that, was, that was just fun. I just enjoyed the time that I had with the people there at that gathering. We have those moments, and it's just a kind of reprieve, perhaps, of some of the crazy things that we experience in the world quite regularly. But you and I both know that there are occasions where other people in our lives and the relationships we have with them, it's not all fun and games. Maybe it's with a spouse, things might go rough, or perhaps when you're raising your kids and running into issues and parenting, and maybe with young kids, and even more so perhaps with, with adult children, you're trying to learn how to live alongside and to love and Maybe it's brothers and sisters in the church. Relationships uh, can have all kinds of different attacks. They can come from those within, the environment without. But the Bible tells us how we are to relate to one another. In fact, it gives a whole bunch of instruction, especially in the New Testament, to tell us how we are to deal with one another. And almost every time that we see that phrase used in the New Testament, one another, it is undoubtedly referring to believer-on-believer relationship. Almost every time that that one another language is used. And so you can quite simply run through a grid, look through the New Testament, find every place that one another is used, and you're going to undoubtedly find instruction on how people within a local church ought to live with each other. In fact, it's quite simple. We try to determine, maybe uh, diagnose what's going wrong in a relationship if there's ever some conflict. If there's ever conflict in a relationship, the reason is very obvious. Someone is not acting enough like Jesus. Usually it's that both parties involved are not acting enough like Jesus. But Paul in Romans chapter 12 gives us a list of one another's. This series, we hope, is going to kind of uncover more than just Romans 12, but today we're going to conclude our time in this particular chapter. And we're going to go through a list of things that the Apostle Paul says, commands, specifically instructs the church to do. And while they are not, uh, they're not random, and they're certainly not disassociated from one another, these lists of individual instructions are quite critical for peace in relationships. If you could perfect the application of even one of these commands, it would turn your life upside down. Now, I don't think that it's possible for us to attain perfection in even one verse of what we're about to walk through right now. But I am betting that at least one of these will jump out to you as we go through them. I'm hoping that that's the case, praying that it will be. And that your attention given to that particular command would be a worthy pursuit that would lead to joy in the relationships you have with other believers. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read through the uh, portion we're going through today, verses 14 through 21. Pray, and then we'll go back through a verse or two at a time. Let's read starting in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, we want you to be honored, you to be glorified in all that we uh, read today and all we study, and Lord, even more so in what we actually apply, we put into action in our lives. But we also know the promise of your word, that when we obey what it says, we do find our path towards human flourishing, and that's what we want, Lord. We want for you to get honor, for there to be peace abounding and joy in the relationships around us, and that, Lord, that we would receive the blessing of doing the things that you commanded for us to do. God, it's challenging to do these things, and so I pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to equip each of us to employ the commands that you've instructed for us to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting back in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, I was kind of already given that intro and explaining that we're talking about the one another's and how Christians ought to relate to one another. And up to this point in this chapter, Paul's made it very clear he's talking about believers dealing with believers. In fact, he's already instructed us on how to exercise our spiritual gifts as members of the church in the church for our collective benefit. In fact, the verse right before this, verse 13, tells us that we should contribute with generosity to the needs of the saints. Saints, holy ones, it's Christians. And yet here in verse 14, we are told how to deal with those who persecute us. These are our enemies. Bless. Bless even our enemies. I'm going to show you in just a few moments why I think that even though the greater context here is talking about believers' relationships together, we are going to learn something that we can apply here that comes out of our thoughtfulness of relating to those who aren't in the church. We are told here to bless those who persecute you. The first audience here would have been acutely aware of the kind of persecutions that the fellow churchmen would have received, uh, beatings and floggings and killings and even removal of property, people being uh, kicked out of families and homes, and, and uh, it was just a rough time. Paul himself, who's writing these things, has experienced a whole host of different kinds of persecutions for being a follower of Christ. And then he tells his churchmen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, bless, that word, can be used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it just means praise, like the praise or worship that we offer to God. Other times it's used to refer to acting rightly or acting kindly towards another person. And sometimes it carries the connotation of speech, to speak well of someone. I think it's that last one, speak well of, that's in mind here. And I think that mostly because of what comes at the end of that same sentence. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
So, so if the opposite is cursing them, I think then the uh, blessing being talked about is to speak well of, treat kindly with your words those who curse you. Scripture repeatedly warns us of the destructive power of our words. In fact, I'm, I think that's probably one of the best places we can go in the New Testament that just talks about the nature of our language and how we talk with one another and how carefully we must think about our words is in James chapter 3. I'm going to read for you a quick paragraph. There's more in this chapter, but I'm just going to read for you a quick summary of what James writes regarding our tongue. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. Strong words from James. He continues, For every species of beast and bird and a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. What crazy instruction given there. Our, our tongues can, like a, like a spark that sets ablaze an entire forest fire. We need to caution and guard ourselves against using our tongue wrongly. And verse 9, which I said, I'll read this part again, is saying the same thing that we're seeing in Romans 12. With it, our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. This ought not be so. You and I live in a day where this kind of talk is pervasive. It's everywhere. People using their words against each other in very heavy, cursing, wicked ways. I think that this is due to a number of factors we could get into, but it is absolutely aided by the dominance of social media, that everyone has the opportunity to share their thoughts with the entirety of the world from the power of their pocket. It used to be that a very limited number of people were in the position to share their commentary on public matters with others, and even then with very limited audiences. But through social media, any individual can make their thoughts available to the entire world in an instant I mean, you know this, don't you? A person doesn't need to first earn the respect of a group of hearers, an audience, before they make a comment on something public. They can do it without anyone having previously given them any approval. And not only that, but the time it used to take to typewrite or to even handwrite or to thoughtfully process and then distribute your thoughts to others was much greater. Now, we're expected to give a thought on something in the Twitter sphere and Facebook and the variety of social media ways Instantly, I mean instantaneously. It used to be that you might have to take a week or two to think through how you'd respond to a big social issue. Make sure it made sense. Make sure it was true. If you're a believer, make sure it runs through the grid of God's word. And okay, that thought is true. That one's not. Okay, here's the summary of my thoughts. Two weeks later, now to my limited audience, here's what I think is the right thing to think about that event. 
But today, cursing of enemies is everywhere. And even if not more prevalent, it has a wider reach and potentially more damaging effects today than ever before in human history. But we are clearly instructed to not follow the world's lead on this. We are not to curse those who curse us. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it is an act of love when we don't curse those who curse us. 1 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So so when you're reviled, when you're cursed, don't do the first natural fleshly thing, curse in return. No, 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 don't do that. Stop. On the contrary, bless. Speak kindly. Generously. For to this you were called. You're a believer. You're called out of the world. You're not supposed to be like the world. You're supposed to look and sound and smell differently. And to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And the blessing there certainly isn't that we should expect more good, more, more, to come, more blessing to come from the world around us. No, the blessing comes from the Lord when we curse even our enemies, when we bless even those who curse us. Excuse me. The Lord will bless us. And of course, the supreme example of this is Jesus. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What an amazing example that Jesus gave us. The supreme purpose for him going to the cross was not example, but it was one of the things that is accomplished on the cross. It's for him to provide an example for all who follow him. You see, the supreme purpose for Christ going to the cross was to bear the penalty for sins for all of those who will ever believe in him. You and I are sinners. We deserve the just judgment and wrath of God. And that penalty, that wrath of God, is separation from him forever in eternity in hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But by God's good love and mercy, he demonstrated that love by sending his perfect son, Jesus. No sin, no deceit, didn't deserve any hell, didn't deserve any destruction, any death on the cross, and yet he got it. Why? Because he went to the cross to bear our penalty, And if you believe on Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, turn from your faith in anything in this world, and turn all of your faith over to him, then you can have eternal life. And as he was raised on the third day, you can be raised to new life as well. If you're not a believer today, that's the call. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. It is your only, only hope. But even in that inglorious giving of his life on the cross, in the moments where he was receiving that torturous beating and dying, he provided an example in that he did not curse. He did not cry out. He did not revile when he was being reviled. Brothers and sisters, that's our supreme example. Bless those who persecute you. Like Jesus, 
Bless and do not curse them. Like our master. Now, this does not mean that there is no recourse against one who has wronged you. That's not what's being stated here. In fact, the entire next chapter, the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 13, will explain how the civil government has been provided to adjudicate, to administer justice where it needs to be dealt with. Okay? So it's not as though there's no recourse for anyone doing some wickedness against you. No, there is. But how you think about these things really, really matters. We are not authorized to reserve hate in our hearts towards a person just because he is our enemy. Well, I am very loving, except for my enemies. I don't love them. But I love all the other people, God. Isn't that great? Love even your enemies. And if you don't hate them, if you love them, then you shouldn't talk as though you do hate them. It's hard to not think of this as a really clear application of a text so crystal clear as this. With the abounding of social media and the prompting of our hearts sometimes, the impulse to say things, to kind of quickly get into big battles and to even undercut individuals, not just ideas, but individuals. Christians, we ought not do this stuff. Quite simply, some of you might need to dramatically change the way you interact with people online. If, if online is kind of the place where the gloves come off and it's like, well, I can say anything to that person. I don't see them. I don't know them. I can hash it back out. I can, you can pummel that person from a distance. I don't think that's honoring to the Lord and certainly not to this command. Some of you might need even to get offline altogether. And I say that seriously. I, occasionally get a chance to observe the way that even believers interact online. And unfortunately, sometimes it looks far too much like the way the world talks to each other. Some of you might need to delete your social media accounts. Like, just get entirely off because you've proven to not be able to handle that power. Perhaps you may need to avoid social media but the way a recovering alcoholic should avoid a bar. Believers, we should be marked by this kind of activity. Receive persecution, bless, not cursing. Not sound like, smell like, type like, tweet like the world. So if that's the way we're supposed to deal with the non-believers in our lives, those who would persecute us, punish us for being believers in Christ, and for the subsequent activities or subsequent uh, uh, ideologies that flow from a Christian worldview, then what does that have to do with our fellow brother and sister? How does this impact how we ought to think about other Christians in the church? I said before, I still think this is in the greater context of with your brothers and sisters. And while this individual verse, verse 14, is undoubtedly about our enemies, if we should treat our enemies this way, how much more are brothers and sisters in Christ? We must speak well of, act kindly toward our fellow Christians. Let's say that in a question. When are you given permission to curse your brother in Christ? Never. Under what conditions is God glorified when you revile your fellow Christian? None. It's sin. And sometimes we just need the real straightforward, clear rebuke on that. Father, forgive me for cursing those who persecute, for reviling when reviled. Help me to be more like your perfect son. This is immediately followed 
by the command to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's two sides of the same coin. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 speaks to the same idea. It says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And the idea here is quite simple, isn't it? We are to see ourselves as one body. And a win for one is a win for all. I grew up uh, playing two sports. Really, it's, I only ever did two sports the entirety of growing up. I wrestled from the time I was four uh, all the way up through and into the Marines, and I, uh, I played football as soon as I could, I, could, I could carry one. Those two sports we did. I born and raised in Chicago. Occasionally, people say, ah, Cubs or Sox. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. We're football and wrestling. That's all we did. No baseball. No okay. But football teams and wrestling teams are two very different kinds of teams, See, the wrestler, when he gets on the mat, he faces off against a singular opponent. And yes, he's part of a team in that if he wins, the points accrued there are applied to the team total. But the wrestler could be the best in the state, the best in the world, and never lose. And his team lose every single game, every meet. The football team, on the other hand, you know, is very different. Every point scored is this point scored for the entirety of the team. In fact, either the whole team wins or the whole team loses. A Christian church ought to see itself more as a football team than a wrestling team in that regard. We win when we all win. We lose when we all lose. We're to have that kind of compassion and empathy for one another. So when you're in a small group and, and somebody comes in and sits down and you see them kind of despondent, hey, what's going on over here? What's going on? Oh, our brother here, he just lost his job. Oh, that stinks. But hey, I just got a promotion. Come on, come on. This is where you pause and you go, oh, man. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. I want you to consider, you've got to know what's going on with your brothers and sisters in Christ in order to do this. It's another one of the unstated prerequisites. How can you rejoice with someone if you don't know they have anything to rejoice over? And how can you weep with someone if you don't know they have anything to weep over? In other words, uh, how's the weather? Christianity ain't going to cut it. If all your interactions with believers at the mission church, for example, are, good morning, how are you? Great, thanks, how are you? Fine. And that's it. That's that's, that's it. That's all you ever get. You're not going to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see that? It's essential then that we get to know the actual circumstances and needs of others. Take joy in each other's successes. Be empathetic to their losses. Now let's go back to that example of small group time, right? Uh, One guy just got a promotion. Another guy just lost his job. And both families are present for the same one. Well, what do you do? Rejoice or weep? Maybe both. But if we're to follow the earlier command given, we walked through this uh, last week, last week in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor, then you don't show up going, well, I really wanted for everybody to just to give their attention to my thing. You show up and go, man, how can I celebrate with that brother or sister? Or, Or how can I weep with that brother and sister? We think of how to care for the other more than ourselves. Rejoice. Weep, and both of those. There's a time for both in our day. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, there are three sentences here. It's kind of four statements. Three sentences here, and I think that these are supposed to be in one verse. This makes total sense. You might know that the actual numbers were put in much, much later in church history. They're not Holy Spirit-inspired, but they are helpful for us to make sure we're on the same uh, verse. We're looking at the same spot. This is one place I think they did it great, because these three thoughts that are being conveyed here in this one verse, I think, are very closely associated, and we'll unpack why. First, it says, live in harmony with one another. Again, that one another, alelon, that word, that idea there is talking about believers' relationship and interaction with one another. Live in harmony. That's the command. Live in harmony. So what's harmony here? That word can, can mean a few different things, but here, what it means and the way that it's used in most of the New Testament is referring to a thoughtful agreement, an agreement of mind, thinking similarly to one another. It's that kind of agreement. The opposite of it would be contention or disagreeableness, always looking for an argument. The trigger happy, uh, it's got to be something we can debate here. It's like that family who gets together at Thanksgiving and like, man, there's got to be something we can fight over. Who's got, who's got a debate, you know? No, live in harmony. That's what we're seeking, that kind of thing. And while, while I don't think that the, the word... The English word harmony is the best use here. Other English translations uh, use other words that get the idea a little fuller. It is at least helpful in that it is associated in our minds, I think, with peace. We think of peace and harmony and kind of, uh, kind of synonyms. And that's, that's pretty accurate to the, the word that's being used here. I want to read for you another uh, place in the New Testament that that exact word for harmony is used. It's in 2 Corinthians 13.11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, and here's the word, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So that's the same word as harmony. Comfort one another, harmony, or agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So that's the kind of thing in mind. Agree with one another. What an interesting command. Especially in light of some of the thoughts that have entered into the Christian church in the West over the last 20 or 30 maybe years. The idea that diversity of biblical views and opinions should be desired and pursued. That's an utter lie. That doesn't mean that diversity of certain biblical interpretations and opinions shouldn't be accommodated and we should seek love in spite of those. That may be true, but it ought not be desired. The Bible doesn't say, man, if only you guys disagreed on more doctrines. No. In fact, Paul continually, more than any other author in the New Testament, says, I want you to have one mind, the same mind, so unified in your mind that you share the same beliefs about these important things. Doesn't that make sense? Because if we were to pursue diversity, it would necessarily pursue error. You and I are to pursue truth objectively in our understanding. And occasionally, learn how to deal with the fact that we're merging into the same uh, written truth and trying to grow with each other and have a level of peace and harmony as we pursue agreement together. Now... This is critical for us as believers to do in a church 
And some of you may have felt and experienced when this is not happening outside of the church. I actually think it's helpful to kind of think about, imagine this. Because I'm betting that what I'm about to describe is probably what a lot of you have to deal with on any given day of the week. If you are in regular community with others, maybe work, you're in a team, tight kind of team, you have to deal with each other together, uh, neighbors that are kind of close, or maybe extended family, maybe your household now, maybe husband and wife have this going on, or your adult children or teenage children perhaps. If you are in regular community with others that do not share the same views as you, and I'm leaving that ambiguous, this is incredibly challenging to do. It's incredibly challenging to do. If you don't share the same views, and when I say ambiguous, I mean it uh, could be political views, could be how the family should be organized, could be what's truth, is there or is there not a God? Whole different levels we could utilize to talk about, right? But if you are with people regularly who have contrary views as you do, especially as those things become more and more important to each of you, this is incredibly challenging, maybe impossible for you to accomplish. Some of you come home from work, for example, and you live in a, you, you work in an environment that the ideologies are so contrary to what you believe to be true, that you come home tired at the end of the day, not because of the labor you're getting paid to do, but because of all of the, all of the contra, uh, contradicting ideologies you have to face, and the, the, the war of thought, and think, uh, the, the, the thought process, and how you're supposed to live and relate to other people there, and there, oh, some people come home just exhausted by this, because it's just really challenging. And I want to kind of warn and encourage you at the same time here. It tends to be one of two things happens to a person in that kind of circle. You either will be motivated to alter your convictions, to align with the consensus of the, those in that group, or you'll feel the need to never talk about or engage with the topics. You'll be good at avoiding all of those where there's disagreement because it's just not worth the pain. Really, the only third alternative is that there's not peace. So if you're to have peace, if you're to live in harmony with those who hate God, let's just say it like that, those who hate God and have set themselves against them in all their decisions and all their thought process, the only way to have harmony in that group is either to accommodate that sinful view or to never say it so they don't even know it's something to deal with, right? And that's a dangerous place for a believer. It begins to kind of soften off the sharp edges of truth, and it begins to kind of just become so overbearing that we just oftentimes accommodate what we ought not. And that's just in the workspace. What is it like in a, in a marriage? I think Christians rightly apply Paul's admonition, do not, be equal, uh, do not be unequally yoked. I think Christians rightly apply that to marriage. I say rightly apply it. I actually don't think that that passage is primarily about marriage. I think it's about all kinds of human relationships we might bind each other in. Clearly, marriage is the chief of those. So yes, it would apply. And the command is to not be unequally yoked. And it's built on an illustration of two beasts of burden pulling a cart or pulling a plow, pulling something heavy. And they have to have a yoke between them. And if you have a, if you have a, a sheep and a goat, it's not going to work well. And so the command to not be unequally yoked is one that is experienced by people and go, oh, I know what that means. That's, that's hard. If husband and wife are, are pointing in opposite directions on critical views of family and life and worldview, oh, it's hard. 
This is why we even say to, we, we say to younger brothers and sisters, you have to hear this over and over, don't even think about dating another person if they're not a fellow believer in Christ. Don't, don't, even, don't even be interested in that. Like, do everything you can to make sure that is not in your mind. Because it is, it's a world of hurt to go down that path. Don't be unequally yoked. And that should be much more than just meets the minimum requirements of being Christian. Well, he's basically Christian. I'm basically Christian. Isn't that the same? No. No, I don't think that, that, I don't think that that's ideal. I think that that's also heading towards a world of hurt for people. To have a strong ox and a weak ox, that's not really equally yoked. And unfortunately, I've spent time with many brothers and sisters in Christ where ideologies inside the home both would say, yes, we're both Christian, but we both have very contrary views on some really important things. That's going to be really, really challenging for you to live in harmony with one another. It's going to be really challenging to do that. And that might even be in some of the categories that aren't just the high level, this is what it takes to be a Christian categories. What if husband wants to baptize the kids and wife says, I don't believe in kids being baptized? Well, that's, that's, that's hard. What, what if one wants to do the public school thing, one wants to do the homeschool thing? Both have ideological reasons as to why. Well, that's going to be, you're going to have to put that into practice somehow. It's going to be challenging. What if, I want, man, I want to attend this kind of church. No, I want to attend this kind of church. No matter how you go, it's going to be very challenging. And so, regarding church membership, this is actually, this kind of command, and thinking thoughtfully about this, actually is one of the values of denominations. Denominations. Denominations get a lot of bad press these days because it's like, oh, why, why divide over non-essentials? And we can concur. There are plenty of denominations, different kind of streams of Christian church that are out there that we could affirm and go, believers, believers, brothers and sisters, yeah, okay, those weird. But it matters. It matters what you believe. Because it's really hard to have peace with one another if you don't have agreement about how you're going to do life with one another. And it can be challenging. It's worth investigating. This, I've said this every time we have church together here. I say, hey, come to introductions if you're new. Do you know why we do that? It's not just so we can get you signed up for a small group. In fact, it's very possible you came to introductions, didn't get signed up for a small group, and we're like, oh, I guess I thought that's the kind of thing. No, what we mean is we want you to know the beliefs. This is who we are. We've been here for long enough. We know the people who leave and why. And here, we want you to know, we want you to hear that. This is, this is, this is who we are as a church. And if we can live in harmony with one another, we can obey this command. But if we have very deviant, kind of distinct and differing views on things, it's got to be really hard to be a part of church life together. Find a church where you have broad agreement, not not just minimum requirements. They're Christians, I'm Christian. There we go, we're good. No, go a little deeper. Make sure that you can agree with a vast majority of the things that are going down there. It'll be worth it just like it would be with a marriage, and just like it would be a great blessing if even in your workplace you could have that, even if that's challenging to find. Live in harmony with one another. Find agreement together with one another. It's probably not at all surprising that the very next thing that's stated after this is do not be haughty. All right, you're going to have to get along. You're even going to have to learn to agree with one another. Live in harmony here. So don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't be conceited, pompous, high and mighty. Uh, we spent a significant amount of time uh, two weeks ago and a little bit of it this last week because Paul kicked off much of this discourse in Romans, Romans 12 challenging and pushing against pride. 
Don't think too highly of yourself. This is an absolute killer to relational peace. It's thinking too highly of oneself. He's bringing her back in here. Do not be haughty. It's the exact same idea in mind. Don't be like that. And then he says right after there, but associate with the lowly. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And you'll see why do not be haughty is listed there and then associate with lowly. All of this has to be bound together for it to make sense. Because if you think too highly of yourself, get this, if you think too highly of yourself, then everyone around you is too lowly. Right? If you think too highly, everywhere I go, I'm surrounded by lowly people everywhere. I do this all all day long. Every time I talk, I talk to lowly ones. Okay? Right? So it starts, okay, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly. All right, associate with the lowly. And you know what? You don't even need to exercise your judgment on what qualifies a person as lowly because you should associate with everybody. You're not above anyone. No one is beneath you in the church. And this is one of the critical results of when we fixate our eyes on Christ. When we spend our days and our time looking at the perfections of Jesus and the holiness of him, and we gaze into that perfection, we see him as so much greater, so much beyond, so much more than us, that when we finally look around ourselves, we don't even notice the distinctions between each other morally. We look at each other and we just go, we're all worms. That's why we must look to Christ over and over and over and over again. It keeps us humble. It reminds us all the time, no matter how good you think you are amongst all those around you, yeah, well, try comparing yourself to Christ and see how that works out. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a gift it is for you personally and for your church. If you do that, compare yourself with Christ and see yourself bound with everyone else. But Paul's not a dummy. He knows the cultures we're going to be in. He knows the societies we're going to be in. And not just that, but the sinfulness of our own hearts. He knows that people stack each other into different hierarchies. We do this in culture and sometimes, unfortunately, even in our own hearts as believers. We let ourselves think better of some and lower of others. Well, okay, even if that was the case, even if that brother was lower than you, associate with him. He's your brother. Even if that sister is lower than you on the social scale, even even if you could make a case and prove that were true, so what? She's your sister. Associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In fact, not being haughty is essential to associate with the lowly. Whoever that is, associate there. And I think there are a few forms of this. Obviously, looking at others through the hierarchical lens like that is wrong. You can look at people and stack them up by race or money or socioeconomic statuses, and, uh, uh, pedigree, sure, uh, levels of education. All of those would be very evidently wicked. But I think that Christians who might not have that in mind can still do this in some measure when we tend to find those particular affinity groups that we kind of associate with best, the the, the people we tend to drift towards when we we get in bigger gatherings and like, oh, our kids are about the same age. Oh, hey, you're bald like I'm bald. You know, that's cool. Um, But we're supposed to think of ourselves as the body of Christ that needs the whole body of Christ. And so who are, who are the ones in your local church body? Like, well, I would never associate with that group. What do you, what, what do you mean that group? Right? That should not enter our minds. That should be the kind of thing we push back and resist against. You know what? Maybe the Lord will bless you greatly to spend time with somebody significantly older or significantly younger or have way more kids than you or less kids than you or single people who, who get to be part of small groups with those who have lots of kids running around. And the Lord does this all the time. 
And so if we're to associate even with the lowly, that means all those in the body of Christ are those with whom we should be relating, live in harmony with one another. All of these we should be finding agreement together with. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This way of thinking is one of the markers of the fools who are under God's judgment at the beginning of Romans in this letter. In chapter 1, Paul says what happens when a person suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. So God turns them over to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. But quite interestingly, he says this in Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. You see, becoming foolish is one thing, but becoming foolish while claiming to be wise is like a whole other level. It's like foolishness squared because it's folly and it's folly that thinks that it's wisdom. And that's what the world does. You and I actually, I mean, Romans 1, we have said this many times in these last few years, is like a social commentary on what we view around us all the time these days. Those who are the most foolish claim to be the most wise and vice versa. Happens all around us. Don't be like that. Never be like that. Never be wise just because you think you're wise. Don't go searching that hidden knowledge that no one else can know or attain. Every wise and trustworthy person that I know gives this kind of counsel here. I'm going to give a different counsel. I'm going to give something new and fresh and innovative. Hmm. Things aren't going well in your marriage. Everyone's saying you need to talk kinder to your wife. Hey, how about this? Yell more at her. There, yeah, we'll do that. That's a, no, guys, don't ever let your own mind seize wisdom for itself. Lay claim to what you think is wise. Wisdom is always attained by something out of the self. In fact, most clearly and specifically in the nature of God and what he has commanded. I think this is connected with the beginning of this verse because lack of harmony is often, if not always, associated with wrong thinking. Right? So start, so look at that, remember, beginning. Agree together in thinking. If you're thinking, man, there's no way that wisdom could evade me because I'm the wisest in the room, you're never going to be able to live in harmony with those around you unless they worship you like you worship you. Whole host of different problems there. You're going to have to be humble, and you're going to have to say, listen, what I think is true, what I think is right, is not technically relevant. What matters is what God says, and my mind, my thinking, my wisdom must align to hear. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. He declares what is wise, not you. It's our job to take every thought captive, pin it to the Word of God, make sure that it sticks, that that actually matches. If two people are in disagreement, someone is wrong. Either person A is wrong, person B is wrong, or both of them are wrong. Those are the only options. Harmony is impossible to attain when you refuse to consider. You might be wrong. Don't be just wise in your own sight. Any counsel that might enter your mind that does not agree with the word of God is folly. It's foolishness. No matter how clever you think it is, Whatever thoughts enter your mind regarding truth, you must make sure those thoughts agree with God's word. Then you can ensure it is not just wisdom in my own sight. 
We could spend weeks just on verse 16 because of how much is packed in here. But let's move on to 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. My mother used to say something similar to this, I think. She'd summarize it. uh, Two wrongs don't make a right. You heard that? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, this could certainly be talking about non-believers, because we should expect in the world around us to receive evil. But brothers and sisters, you and I have the capacity for evil. Anything that does not comport with the word of God is evil. It is sinful. It is wrong. It is part of the flesh, the sin nature that we draw upon when we do wrong things. And so, yes, it is possible for believers to do evil against one another. If you gossip about your sister, you did evil. If you lie to your brother, you did evil. And so, yes, this can happen within the church. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Think about what honors God first, others second, and self last. That's a little bit of an ism we employ here. I think this is consistent with the word of God. Think what honors God first, others second, self last. Don't don't be stingy for honor for me. Because whose honor should we be most concerned about? God's. He's first. Then the others around us. And lastly, in a distant third, should be the self. And how should we do this? Give, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought. So think about this. Think about when you receive evil, when evil is done against you. Stop. Pause for a second. This is, this is not knee-jerk reaction. He slaps you, you slap him. No, no, no. no. Pause, pause. Repay no one evil for evil. So evil, I just received evil. Someone did something evil against me. This is wrong they did this. Pause, time out. Give thought. Did you know how many problems could be solved if we just did that part? Just circle, give thought. Just pause, give thought. Don't just respond. Because if you just need jerk reaction, it's going to be your flesh. It's going to gush out of you, and you're going to do something evil. Just pause for a second. Breathe. You ever, ever been there with a, with a brother or sister in Christ and kind of having, having lunch together, and maybe they get a text about something, like, ah, they want to, like, Reply back quickly. Hold on, just, just stop. Just think about this for a second. Put this on ice for a moment. Let's make sure you know what happened. You're, you're receiving what happened correctly. You, it really is evil that was received. It wasn't an accident or the text to a wrong person or something. And give thought. And what are you going to do after you think? Think about to do what is honorable in the sight of all. How you treat your brothers and sisters is on display. It matters. 2 Corinthians 8.21 says almost the exact same thing. Listen to this. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Apostle Christ is saying that. Not just God's sight, but in the sight of man. God is watching, but so are others. So are people. Hmm. 1 Peter 2.12 Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. When he tells his followers that they ought to let their light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, what we do is going to be observed. It's going to be seen. And if we 
are doled out evil and then respond with evil, others will observe that and associate that wrongly with the name of Christ that we bear, the love of God we proclaim. We must do rightly so that others will see that we, and even more importantly, our God and his truth, honorable. Some people hoard and withhold their honor like a, like a little kid fending off others who are trying to get to their hard-earned Halloween stash, right? Like, no, this is my honor. If I give you honor, I lose it. I, there's only so much to go around. Not true. Honor giving is not a zero-sum game. It's not slices of a pie. Where someone gets more, you get less. It doesn't work like that. This is God's economy. Try this on. When, when a man opens the door for his wife, do they go, oh, look at that man losing all of his honor. No! His giving honor to his wife is evidence of his honor. It is an honorable activity for his honorable wife. Everybody wins. You see, it multiplies. When you give honor to your brother or sister, it adds more into the collective pile for all. So the command that we saw last week to outdo one another in showing honor, you, you see, if we actually do that, it's no longer just adding to the collective pile. It's now multiplying. Because if I give more honor to my brother who just showed it to me, not only do I receive less, or uh, do I not receive less, I receive more, but then I'm going to get even more than that returned. It gets out of control in a wonderful way. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Moms and dads, just quick thought for you. Your kids will learn about honor from you. Are you stingy with the honor that you offer to your spouse? Dads, do your kids see you just gush honor to their mother? Moms, do you honor your children's father in front of them? I think sometimes we struggle with this in the most the closest relationships. And sometimes parents are like, man, why don't my kids show me any honor? Well, are you, are you pouring it into the collective pile of honor in your house? No, we hold honor back from each other. Well, then why are you surprised? <sighs> Give thought. Pause. No evil. Okay, he said something. She did something. That's not right. Pause. How can I give honor here? Honor first to God, second to others, and lastly me. I think what follows here is sort of a summary verse. Look at verse 18 with me here. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What a great summary kind of verse here. And honestly, I have more going on, but for sake of time, we're just going to crash land on this verse. We're going to let this be the end of today. We'll pick up where we left off next week. But let's conclude this. This is implying right off the bat that it is expected. You may not be able to have peace with some people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I, I think that's implying. I, you may not have peace with everybody. In fact, if you're living a life honoring to God, you better expect the world's going to hate it. You're not going to have peace with everybody around you. Jesus didn't have peace with everyone around him. And that's not his fault. That was theirs. Because while he lived perfectly, proclaimed perfectly, gave his life perfectly, those around him hated it in him. He did not have peace with the Pharisees. And that was their fault, not his. Because God is the judge. God is the judge. 
That means that God doesn't have to, to research and learn and figure out and, and, and test everybody else's opinion to get to the bottom of things. The Father is not in heaven as the Son stands there and then the Pharisees stand there and he goes, so you guys weren't getting along. Pharisees, give me your side of the story. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even turn to the wife and say, wife, how do you think he did as a husband? God doesn't need to do that. He knows you and I are commanded to, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Peace with others is not always possible. It may take two to tango, but it takes one to pick a fight. You're responsible for what you do. If you're to live at peace with others, that's an inner commitment. While honor is outward, peace is inner. Try this on. This might be helpful as we're seeing this flow here and the way these things are talked about. Honor requires outward behavior. Peace requires an inner contentment. Both, both honor and peace are outward and in, inward, but, but honor is necessarily outward, and peace is necessarily inward. In other words, if there's a, if there's a, a private in, in the army, and he's, uh, he's, in, he's, in his, he's in his tent, and he's just kicked up, uh, you know, uh, with his boots up on, on the, uh, the footlocker, and a general walks in, and he goes, hey, what's up, dude? You'd go, that, that, that's not how you honor a general. Even if in your heart of hearts, young private, you genuinely love that general, you would die for that general. Hey, anywhere you go, I'll go. You, you command me up the hill, I'll die on the hill you point to because I honor you, dude. It's not honor unless you get up, salute, show it, right? To give honor requires something outward. But peace requires something inward. If that same private were to jump to attention and snap to and the whole while thinking, I hate you, you miserable punk, right? He doesn't have any inner peace. But outwardly, he's showing the honor. And so this is helpful then. When we show honor, it ought to be on display. It has to be something that's working. People can observe if you honor something. But the others around you might not be able to observe if you have peace with somebody or something. So brothers and sisters, this is really where we have to go to the Lord and we have to say, God, test my heart. Ensure that I have peace with this brother or sister in Christ, with my spouse or kids or in the church. Please do that work on me because I can shake hands and smile and things look good, but Lord, you know, you know the work that has to be done. And so this challenge is far greater than just uh, don't do things outwardly that pick fights. Of course you should, shouldn't do things outwardly that pick fights, but this is a deeper command. Live peaceably. Live peaceably with all. You must, in your heart, choose to think well of people, to speak well of people, choose to love them, to honor them outwardly, and in the inner heart, be grateful. And it's incredibly powerful when we can do this. I hope to spend more time on this in upcoming weeks as we have time, but I hope that that'd be a helpful encouragement and challenge to you all from Romans 12 this morning. Let's pray as we close. Father, there's so much more here. We could just recycle these same verses a hundred more times and still be served by this and challenged and still not attain or in many ways not even be on the, the path to perfection in any of these things. But we thank you that you have sent your perfect son not only to die for our sins, to be an example for us. And so Lord, help us to follow his example and the way he related to the church. There was not always peace, but that was because of sin. But Lord, help us to be like him. Help us to be a church that loves one another well, deeply, 
inwardly and outwardly. And I pray for peace to abound in this church, the kind of peace that comes from a real inner heart love for one another as you've commanded us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.